We're uh, spending several weeks here in January in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you were here last week? After hear David's message, so good. Most most of you were. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book that is unique in Scripture. It's uh, relentlessly uh, pessimistic. Um, in Moby Dick, uh, which is not exactly a feel-good read in itself, um, Melville calls Ecclesiastes the truest of all books, uh, the uh, fine-hammered steel of woe. Uh, people react to it differently. I think some of you uh, will find that you love Ecclesiastes. I know Christians who say it's their favorite book of the Bible, and others of you are, are going to be a little bit more, yeah. Um, because of its emphasis on uh, the futility of our human experience, in some ways Ecclesiastes may feel more modern uh, and secular in its outlook than any other book of the Bible. Uh, but you know, pessimism about human experience is nothing new. Uh, as as uh, we learn in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There are apparently other examples of, of pessimism literature in uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern literature. So there's a, there's an Egyptian work uh, called The Man Who Was Tired of Life, uh, dating from about 2300 B.C. And then in, in the, uh, from out Babylonia, there, there are two works. The first one is called The Dialogue uh, Concerning Pessimism from about 1300 uh, B.C. And, and that's, <laughs> that's followed by a sequel, called uh, Councils of a Pessimist uh, around 1000 B.C. So um, Ecclesiastes has a lot in common with, with these writings uh, in terms of its, its, its message, which is that if we confine uh, our thinking only to uh, this world, uh, to our experience of life under the sun, uh, is that recurring phrase, only to what we can see, um, and, and particularly without faith in, in, in God, uh, if we look at things deeply and honestly, um, we, we may also be forced to agree, as one writer put it, that the world is utterly pointless. A good and bad die alike. The course of the world is inscrutable and futile. The wise man learns more from a funeral than a party. And so last week, uh, David introduced this, this great book to us, at, um, and he promised that after impressing upon us the, the bleak outlook, that, that this week we'd hear a more hopeful perspective, um, which is a little bit easier said than done. <laughs> Spending time in Ecclesiastes is a little bit like living in Seattle, I think, uh, you know, where, where it's cloudy uh, over 300 days of the year, um, and too much of that, and you'll develop a seasonal affective disorder or something like that. You know, I mean, is, is there any hope in this book? Um, and I think, yes, there is. Uh, there are some, some glimpses of light. Uh, uh, this is a very important book, I think, for us to, to listen to deeply. And when we do, there are some glimpses of light that break through the clouds from time to time. Um, and point us to a, a better, a better way of seeing, uh, a way of seeing that's not fully developed here, not finally fully developed until we get the perspective of, of the New Testament. And tonight we're going to look at uh, some verses from uh, chapter three, 
where some rays of light do break through the clouds. This is a beautiful uh, scene from the uh, Colorado sky at twilight there, uh, light right through the clouds. Um, tonight we're going to look at chapter 3. And the first part of this, anyway, is, is uh, one of the most uh, famous uh, sections in all of Scripture and, and probably in all of world uh, literature, uh, the first eight verses. But we can't read those in isolation, and so we're going to continue uh, down a little bit further. So listen with me as uh, I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, that one, verses 1 through uh, 15, I'll read to you. Uh, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time uh, to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker? From his toil. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So we have this beautiful, uh, in these eight verses, this beautiful poem uh, of, of these couplets that, that encompasses really all of the, the richness, the complexity, the mystery, the frustration, the, the good and the bad uh, of uh, human experience, uh, particularly as it touches us as human, as, as experience touches us as human beings. Um, and then that's... that's Oops. That's followed by this section in uh, beginning in verse uh, nine, which uh, verse nine is interesting because you know you have this beautiful poem, and uh, you know and this has made its way into f folk music. Peter Paul and Mary, you know, made a song that some of you uh, know that, or this we read in, in, in you know in secular ceremonies and. Um, uh, but 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 that that text then is followed by what one writer calls in verse nine a kind of a sucker punch, you know you're kind of thinking oh this is sort of beautiful and then he just says but what what gain has the worker from all of his toil? Uh, and, and the the implied answer which was stated at the end of chapter two which we looked at last week is is none nothing. 
And so into, into this uh, uh, picture that Ecclesiastes is, is, is drawing for us of our, of our experience, I want to suggest um, two rays of light that begin to break through. And particularly in, uh, if you want to go back to the other slide, the, the second one, uh, particularly we're going to see coming out of some of these verses, some of the ways that light can begin to break into what seems to be a very bleak description. And so the first ray of light that I want to uh, point to is what I, I, I'll call the sound of silence. The first element of hope comes here when we come uh, to finally, not just intellectually, but maybe deep in our, in, in our being, to finally really hear what the teacher is telling us in Ecclesiastes. I mean, right, most people don't spend all their days uh, in despair. Uh, we recognize that, sure, life is hard, sometimes it's unfair, unjust, bad things happen, etc., but, you know, look on the bright side. You know, uh, keep a good outlook, be optimistic, it's worth it. Hang in there, don't give up. And, um, and so most people retain... Uh, enough of a sense of optimism in their outlook that they keep they keep going, uh, they keep living with uh, perhaps unexamined assumptions, uh, delusions. Really, uh, the writer here would say, uh, and he doesn't want us to stay in that kind of happy delusional thinking about reality. Um, you know, one, one of my kids would always say, "Why do we have to talk about everything?" and <laughs> in a way, what she was saying is, you know, don't don't trouble me with hard realities. I just want to have uh, and enjoy myself. Uh, and I think we can all, at some level, relate to that. But the, the the teacher here says, no, I want you to see reality uh, and and not continue to live in in a sort of a deluded. Um, uh, optimism that that apart from God nothing makes sense, and He's pushing on us, pushing on us. Why do we work? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we do anything? Why do we get out of bed in the morning? You know, when I was a kid, we were always being told there was actually a public service announcement that would come on the television to get a good job, get a good education, um, and so why did we go to school? Well, why did we study hard? Uh, so we can get into college, right? Okay, well, why do we go to college? Well, so you can get a job. Why, why do you get a job? Um, I don't know, so I can <laughs> have some money, so I can accumulate some possessions. Um, maybe I, I can get married. Maybe I can have kids who will squander my money and my possessions. <laughs> or or, uh, or uh, maybe I'll have kids who can work hard so that they can get into college and get a job. And um, the teacher is kind of saying, wait, what's, why are we doing this? And he, he presses these questions to a kind of a bitter end. Uh, that so often the ends for which we are living, and this is one of the questions, you know, for all of us in the room tonight, uh, they just don't add up. David was talking about this last week. The teacher looks at our human experience uh, under the sun and concludes that it's, it's vanity. That's the, the, the refrain, vanity of vanity. That it's, it's fleeting. 
It's like a vapor uh, that just appears and then disappears. And, and at times he expresses it when he considers everything that he's done, all the experiences he's had, everything he's accumulated. Uh, he considers it, he just he says, it's not worth it, I hate it. It's nothing. Because, why? Because we all die. And, and then somebody else is going to just follow after me. And maybe everything I worked hard for is, uh, I can't control what's going to happen to that after I'm gone. What was the point of that? Uh, there, there seems to be no lasting gain from it. Maybe I work very hard and somebody else destroys everything that I've done. Um, or, or many people seek to, to when well, they think, okay, so I'm going to die, but I want to leave a legacy. Um, and, and so they desire to produce something that will last beyond their, their brief uh, time uh, upon the earth. Something that's permanent, something significant that, you know, and, and you know, this is, this is the whole part of the way Princeton raises money, right? Is, well, you know, if you, if you give us money, then maybe we'll name a building after you, and sure, you'll be dead and gone, but there will be a building named after you, and in that sense, you'll, you'll live on uh, in name and, and, and legacy. But but then you know what happens at Princeton? Well, another donor comes along who has even more money. And they just rename the building. And it's like you're, you're erased. Some of you uh, know from your English classes uh, the great uh, poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, Ozymandias. Do you guys know this? You guys must have read this poem. I'll just skim through it. Uh, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And so this great king who thought he would be immortal, who would make a name for himself, all that's left is this decaying piece of rock in the midst of the, the infinite expanse of sands. What's been accomplished? Why? You know, there was a comic, uh, it's actually mostly before my time, called Mutt and Jeff. Have you heard of that? I mean, this 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 appeared in newspapers. You've heard of them, right? Um, <laughs> sort of two, two numbskulls, and you know, uh, and uh, in one, in, you know what that word means. In one strip, Jeff finds Mutt has built uh, a big pile of stones in in the road, in the middle of the road, and at the top, he's he's placed a light, kind of a lantern. And so Jeff asked Mutt, well, why did you build the pile of stones? 
uh, Lotus answer is, well, so I could put up the light. Well, why did you want to put up the light? He answers, well, so the cars won't run into the pile of stones. <laughs> you know, it's like, why? Why are we doing what we're doing? If, if we only look at part of, a, of, of the picture of our existence, in other words, we might convince ourselves that, that this makes sense, and we might imagine that our work does have a kind of significance. Um, okay, yeah, i got to work hard so I can get to college, so I can get a good job, uh, and that will motivate us. But, but Ecclesiastes wants to sort of zoom back and say, well, okay, but wait a minute, what, what if it really is all just stupid and pointless? And, and when we step back and, and ask, well, wait, what gain has the worker from all of his toil? What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And, and Ecclesiastes wants us to hear that the answer is nothing. Nothing. And it powerfully captures what, what we would describe as, as an existential despair that so many people grapple with. And it wants us to feel the weight of that. I mean, in, in, in modern existentialism, this emptiness is sometimes described in terms of nothingness. Sartre's great book is on being and nothingness. Nada, uh, Ernest Hemingway, a little short story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. Nada, nada, nada. Nothing. Or silence. Uh, Peter Kreeft, uh, in, in writing about Ecclesiastes, he makes reference to a Christian existentialist, Soren Kierkegaard, in arguing that what we desperately need is to hear the silence of human experience. And Kierkegaard writes this, if I could prescribe just one remedy for all of the modern world, I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were proclaimed in the modern world, no one would hear it. There is too much noise. Therefore, create Silence. And, and what Kreeft says is Ecclesiastes creates silence. It says, what do you gain for all of your toil under the sun? And you say, well, that's a bleak place to come to. Right, it is. But that's in itself where the light can begin to break through. Because that silence and, and that, that sense of the nothingness can be a grace of God breaking through is like pulling the, the earbuds out of your ears, turning off the noise, and, and when all that noise is stripped away and there is only me alone, perhaps, in the universe, then, maybe in that moment, I am, for the first time, really able to listen and really able to hear the voice of God, to come to a place where we realize that, that from a, a human perspective, nothing does make sense, nothing does satisfy. Uh, one of my dear friends, she was on PF staff for a while, her, her name is Amy, 
was an undergraduate here in engineering. And at Princeton, she, she worked uh, uh, so hard. And what, one of her aspirations was to be inducted into the uh, Society of uh, Women Engineers. Uh, and when, when she finally achieved it, she worked hard, and, and uh, she, she uh, attained this honor. And in that, in that, that moment of achievement, uh, working hard and finally achieving something that she had hoped for and worked for, she felt empty. Um, she, it didn't make her happy the way that she, she imagined it would. It, it, it felt hollow. It was one of those, wait, is that all there is? Moments. And, and God used that Ecclesiastes moment in her life to begin to turn her to faith in Christ. That moment, if you, if you will, of silence. Wait, is this everything? And she began to seek God and eventually found Christ. Or, um, even going back further in time, um, one of my roommates and, and uh, lifelong dear friends, uh, Lynn McAdam, uh, he came to Princeton from Alpena, Michigan. Uh, he was a hockey player. And as a, as a freshman here, a um, uh, really outstanding uh, hockey player, but he was flunking out of Princeton. <laughs> um, and uh, it was in January, just before freshman year exams. It was right about this time of year. Uh, maybe, maybe just like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Maybe some of you can relate to this story. Um, he was playing hockey down... Um, uh, down at Baker Rink and um, slammed very hard into the, the goalpost uh, and uh, badly broke his, his leg, uh, really smashed it, which uh, obviously knocked him out of, of hockey, uh, but also in some ways became a, a convenient and I might even say gracious reason for him to withdraw and rescind the semester because if, if he had... Uh, move forward with his exams, uh, I think he would have flunked out. So that was a moment in which everything came crashing down. Everything that had, had been his source of identity and aspiration. And God used that Ecclesiastes moment. Wait, is this all there is? God used that experience of the silence uh, uh, of, of his experience to bring him to faith in Christ. So part of what I'm saying is that Ecclesiastes is, is a work of apologetics. It, it brings us to a life of faith by throwing back the curtain and, and forcing us to look at the grimness uh, of the alternative. And in the midst of the silence, we wonder, but is this really all there is? And, and it's in that moment, that, that moment of, of groping, grasping for something more, that I believe that is a profound uh, grace-filled moment. What the writer says here is that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what has God done from the beginning to the end. 
You know, and I wonder, uh, we won't turn there, but I wonder if, the, I believe the Apostle Paul probably has Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in the back of his mind when he preaches uh, the message of the gospel to an unbelieving audience in Athens, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 17. Because there, as he preaches to those unbelievers, and he speaks about their own groping uh, after God, he talks about how God created mankind, how he appointed the times and the places, which uh, echoes our, our verses 1 through 8 here. To what end? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not, Paul says, actually far from each one of us. And so I want to suggest to you that, that a very significant ray of light, a grace that breaks into Ecclesiastes is this sense that we need the silence. We need, to, we, we, we need something that will break through the distraction and the delusion and bring us face to face with, with reality, the, the, the reality and the nature of our existence. And Ecclesiastes can do that. And the second ray of light just follows directly on that, that into that silence or into that darkness in, in which we find ourselves groping for meaning comes the possibility of a voice. You know, in, in these verses, uh, 9 through 15, God is there. God is in the picture. And I think the main takeaway from this, just read one verse right now, um, I perceive there's nothing better for, for them, for mankind, than to be joyful, to do good as long as we live, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I, I think the, 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 the grace that breaks through here is simply this, that life is not to be conceived ultimately in terms of what we accomplish, what we achieve, but in terms of what God gives. God's gift coming to see that everything is ultimately from the hands of, of a good, uh, a sovereign God, that everything is ultimately a gift by His grace. I mean, just think in terms of our work, that, that finding satisfaction in my work, to the extent that I'm able to do that, comes when I begin to see what I'm doing and my work as something from the hand of God. In other words, it's not something that I'm doing to try to create meaning or to try to find meaning or, or fulfillment. Ecclesiastes says that, that'll just lead you to despair. But to find that if I begin to see that, no, I'm a, I'm a creature in, in, in a creation, that there is a God who has given life, who gives work, who gives us... Uh, uh, life to enjoy. When I begin to see life, in other words, as gift, I begin to move toward hope.
And so, for example, I mean, I think scripture, well, scripture is definitely very clear. And I think uh, my own experience and most of our human experience would lead us to say that we, we think of life as being all about me, capital me. Um, whether we're focusing on accumulating wealth or gaining power or enjoying pleasure or receiving honor, it's all about us. But, you know, when I was, when I was your age, I, I think I was materially blessed, so I wasn't all that preoccupied with uh, gaining wealth. What motivated me ac- uh, academically, uh, what got me to Princeton and motivated me while I was here, was primarily, I'm, I'm not a proud of myself to say this, was primarily envy and, and vanity and conceit. Um, you know, that my wealth depended on me being smarter than anyone else. That was what, my, not my wealth, my worth. Uh, that's what motivated me. Not even the love of learning um, or some utility. I, I quoted this, but not even a particularly utilitarian idea that I, I could one day get a good job. I mean, I majored in English. Um, but just wanting to feel uh, good about myself, to feel in some sense better than others by measuring my uh, intelligence and, uh, relative to theirs. And, and so the reality was I often hated work, right? Uh, because work was the way I was constantly being evaluated. Work was the, the way I was always trying to measure, am I good enough? And that was oppressive to me. And, and that insecurity uh, also made me, made me fearful and, and, among other things, uh, squelched any adventurous spirit in me from trying new things. And even now, I will shy away. You know, one reason I don't like to play party games is because I, I, I'm still vain enough that I just, I hate to look stupid in front of other people. And so I, do, I would just rather not do it. Anything that would make me look bad in comparison. And, you know, even speaking to a room full of Christians, we, we can fall again and again into seeking our sense of worth and self and meaning in ourselves and in our accomplishments and how we measure against others. And, and that's why, you know, we, maybe we go to Facebook and why we get so depressed whenever we go to Facebook, Right. Um, and that's why we compare ourselves with others and feel envy or resentment or feel threatened. Because we're viewing life under the sun. We're not viewing life as a gift from God. And the irony that, that I think Ecclesiastes and all of Scripture points us to is that it's only when it stops being all about me when life begins to be about a larger narrative, when life begins to be about God and a, and a grander reality that whether or not I'm fulfilled, only then do we begin to experience the kind of lasting and hopeful joy and sense of satisfaction. When I see that all the things that I'm grasping for to give me life are like, are, it's like I'm grabbing hold of lifelines that aren't attached to anything. In the end, I need to see, no, none of these things are going to save you, Bill. It, it's only finally when I learn to rest in God, what he has done for me, that I can begin to find a kind of a lasting peace, and joy, and satisfaction. And so we need to, to move from Ecclesiastes to the New Testament and to hear Jesus speak into the silence 
that Ecclesiastes creates and that, that we experience. And, and hear Jesus say things like this, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Or come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden and despairing that life has meaning. Come unto me and find rest for your souls. You know, the, the Apostle Paul was, was certainly different in many ways, but ultimately he, he was a human being like the rest of us. And he had to learn that his sense of worth and self and confidence could not rest on his own achievements, his education, his heritage, his status before others, that all of this was futility and chasing after the wind. Until he encountered something, until he encountered someone a teacher who made sense of everything, a rock upon which he could stand, a hope that would not disappoint him. Then he could let go of all these other lifelines and begin to really live. You know, he describes this when he gives his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He says, you know, I had all these things that I was trusting in until I came to understand that, that they were... They were they, they were ultimately worthless. Whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and, and count them, recognize them, see them now for what they really are, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It's when we learn that we're created, that we're image bearers, that we are, through Jesus Christ, redeemed and dearly loved children, that the answer to the, to the riddle of human existence is Jesus Christ. That's when we begin to find a, a lasting joy and meaning in the present and a hope for our future. Something that might transform, for example, our work. And so Paul will say, whatever you do, work at it heartily. Why? Because it's so fulfilling? Because it's so satisfying? Because it has such an impact? Because you make so much money for it? Because it's so prestigious? No. Work at your work heartily because as for the Lord... You're doing it for Christ, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is Ecclesiastes pokes us where we ache most deeply. The, the deep ache that we have to make sense of, of reality, to, to, to sense that our, our lives have meaning and and it pokes us there and then points us to the, to the one who offers us that meaning. And that's Jesus Christ. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, the sense 
that in this universe we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in this, in a sense, described is, is talking about the, 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 the glory that is, is promised to those who believe becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory here means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking our whole lives will open at last. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside. So beautiful expression. To be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all of our merits, and also the healing of that old ache. And, and, and what, what I'm trying to get at tonight is that Ecclesiastes, I think, uh, sheds, sheds light in the darkness by confronting us with the silence so that we can hear the, the voice of God, the voice of Christ, saying, come inside. You are not alone in the universe. Come inside. And our Christian hope is this. If the dead are not raised, if Christ has not been raised, Paul could be quoting Ecclesiastes, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that reality, because we have a Savior who gave himself for us and is saying, come inside. Come out of the darkness into the light. Come to the sound of my voice out of the silence that Paul exhorts us. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Over against vanity of vanities, all is vanity, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, I pray that you would challenge our hearts tonight. If we have surrounded us ourselves with every kind of noise so that we don't have to hear the silence and consider the nature of our existence. I pray, Lord, that uh, tonight we would be confronted with the silence that Ecclesiastes creates and ask ourselves, what does it all mean? And Father, I pray that in that silence, by your grace, we would hear your voice speak to us, reminding us that you are the creator of all things, 
that you've created us for a relationship with yourself. And that you're calling to us even now, come unto me. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Father, help us in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.